welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. Today I'm joined by Bali Haak. Now, Bali has been a, an accounting teacher, a principal of multiple schools, a deputy chief executive of NZQA. After he uh, moved on from that, he went to be principal of Terriora College in the Cook Islands for a few years and then came back and wrote a wide-ranging report on reforming our education system, our, our school system. Then, following a stint on the Labour Party Policy Council, he's now a city councillor. Is it a city councillor or a regional councillor, Bali? For, for yeah, city councillor. City councillor yeah. for New Plymouth. So, welcome to the podcast, Bali, and I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. <laughs> Likewise, likewise. It's taken us a while getting there, but we've got there, which is good. So I'd like to first turn to the NZQA days. Now, this is where I first met Bali when I was working there as a, a statistician, and, and I happened to arrive at a, a moment of crisis for the organisation. This was back in 2005, and, and there were some problems with the exam round that resulted in massive variability from one year to the next, and proportions of kids achieving in various standards and there were other problems with the scholarship system. Many of these had been predicted by people like Cedric Hall and Warwick Ellie who were education academics and yet they fell into this hole with these variability problems and following that there were a couple of fairly damning reports out of the State Services Commission and I think Bali it was on the back of that that the organisation was restructured which resulted sure. in you ultimately getting the position as deputy chief executive for for qualifications. So mm. let's start with that. What 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 attracted you to that job when you saw it come up? <laughs> Actually, I I I'd been a keen proponent of NCA for a few years prior to that, and and I saw before me unfolding before me, you know, the potential demise of NCA, and I. I wanted to do something that would support its development. So when the job came up, stupidly, I decided I'd go for it. And incredibly, they appointed me. That's how it ended. It's probably fair to say that you walked into a fairly torrid environment. The The organisation was demoralised and, and had been in many ways shattered by, the, by these State Services Commission reports. And... I think probably the culture of the organisation at the time made things a little bit difficult for you at first. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the there were several issues. One was it was quite unusual for a secondary school principal to be put into that position, so I had a sort of a, a credibility gap, as it were, from the people in the organisation to begin with. I think the other problem was that it, it, NZQA. You will know, Michael better than I, it was sort of an organisation under siege and had been for some time. One of the things I noticed that there were some really good people, some really capable people there, but because they had felt under siege for so long, for whatever reasons, it, the culture that had developed was we're doing it right and, it, and other people are wrong. You know, the media is misrepresenting us or the schools are getting it wrong or they're not doing what we want them to do and... And incredibly, and was, even the even the experts, people like you know John Hattie and Terry Crooks, the, these professors of education, were ignored and and disparaged. Yeah, 
and and that, and that was that sort of inward looking siege mentality which took over the organization and so really good capable hard-working people got sort of stuck in a box and 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 you know i suppose i, I wouldn't want to criticize them i think it sort of it happened um, and but there were but i think that therefore the restructure that occurred and the the new brooms coming in was really really important yes and you came in with a fairly strong mandate to implement a range of reforms. I suppose to the technical aspects of the NCA system. So the principal problem was variability between standards over time, and so on. And and so a lot of the the solutions that we worked on at that time were were technical ones. How the exams were to be marked and how you were to control the variability in, in the results, things like that. Moderation of internal assessment was another big one. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 th I think I used the word, uh, I, I talked about credibility a lot, that, that you can't have a national qualification that is not seen as credible. And that, that spanned both the external assessment and the internal assessment and the way the organization serviced people you know the actual you know how it looked to people when you know schools teachers when it operated so it, it there was a huge lack of credibility in the organization and in the qualification which we needed to be addressed and of course there was a, a whole sector to bring on board as well with the the changes that you were having to put into place and yeah. I was lucky to observe that firsthand. I, I think it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in a way. We, we would have these meetings, what, what were they called? The, Le the Leaders Forum Qualification Group every, every month. That's right. Yes, right. That's right. So yes. remind me, who, who, who was represented on that group? There were quite a number of, of organisations. Well, I, I think the, we used, uh, the main one, the main players were Ministry of Education folk. PPDA had strong representation. And then I think that, of course, there was NZQA and there were... Schools Trustees I, Association. The, trustees Association. The independent yeah. schools and all, all these people. And, the big stakeholders, that's right, yeah. And every time we'd bring them a, a new idea, they would be a little bit upset by it. Yes, I, I mean, that, that's... It's fascinating, isn't it, looking back, because... You know, I still I still remember the debates around things like certificate endorsement, which which are now sort of sitting and and course endorsement, which was even more difficult, which which were regarded as you know by some by some anyway by as a complete catastrophe waiting to happen. So just and, for li for listeners who may not know what those things are, course endorsement means that a a student can get merit or excellence or a whole certificate rather than just individual standards if they get a requisite number of the credits towards that certificate with merit or excellence. And likewise, with course endorsement, they have to get a certain number of credits with merit and excellence, and then they get the, the course with merit or excellence. Sorry, go ahead, Bali. No, no, I, I, thank you for that. I, I, what I was saying was that it was part, it was part of that inward-looking scenario that we talked about before uh, and that people could not at that time so easily see that we were talking about 
maintaining and developing the credibility, the qualification, rather than the, the if you like, the inward-looking, often ideological conversations that people really wanted to have. Now, it's, it's probably worth picking up on that ideological uh, aspect of it. Where, where, what was the nature of that ideology, and where do you think it came from? I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think one of the, one of the, you know, one of the problems was that when NCA was, was first developed, it was this multi-field qualification, and by that I mean that it was possible, it was viewed as a qualification that treated vocational standards to the same in the same way as what we might now refer to as curriculum or, or academic standards. I think the term at the time was parity of esteem. They wanted, parity of esteem. They wanted yeah. all kinds of learning to be equally valued. Yeah. And I think that that, that basic thought uh, around breaking down those barriers and providing fle a flexible qualification that everybody could do and, and therefore breaking down or encouraging greater equity was was a really strong driving force in the inception and development of the organ of the qualification to begin with and i think that fundamental problem of, as you the parity of esteem thing was was a real barrier if you like to developing a credible qualification in the context of people's expectations uh, or schools and the public's expectations of what a credible qualification would look like. So a credible qualification would, would in the public view, rank people. A credible qualification would, would recognise that there is something different between vocational and academic. You know, so so the, the ideology was hitting or rubbing against really strong public perceptions and understandings of what a qualification should be. Yes, and, and to some extent, it, it had already made compromises with that ideology even before it was implemented, right? So the, the achievement standards, which had, well, at least rudimentary ranking and that, that you could get achieved merit and excellence for them, had been brought in on top of unit standards, which you either achieved or you didn't. And so we had this duplication problem where all of the academic areas in schools had both unit standards and achievement standards for them. So there was kind of doubling up. I think the, the, the other thing, Michael, I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about is this whole assessment debate around what I, I, think, I think it's still termed formative and summative assessments. And, and you know, if you look at the New Zealand curriculum, if you look at Good teaching practice, you know, we're supposed to use assessment as a formative activity to support learning. It shouldn't be a barrier. It, it shouldn't label people. It should be providing information to teachers and students to improve. Uh, on the one hand, that's form, uh, formative. And on the other hand, summative, it's, it's sort of a ranking bit. And well, I think it's, it's one of the problems... Credentialing, isn't it? We'd say summative is, yeah. is for awarding yeah. grades right. or outcomes. And I think that NCA, I suppose maybe it's true of other qualifications as well, but we struggled, I think, with with trying to do both things at the same time. Mm. And it, and if you and 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 people couldn't 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 understand uh, uh, and put into practice 
that those two demands of of using assessment for furthering learning and as a credentialing. So you get into all these issues around, you know, second chance assessment. Yes. And and you, and and also you get into all this stuff around, you know, what the place of external assessment and internal assessment is, because with internal assessment, you can help students get there. With external assessment, it's more difficult. So the, those conflicts around there, I don't know if we've solved them even now. Well, I, 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 I mean, I, I think you're asking an assessment to an, to do an awful lot of work if you want it to serve both purposes and. And I think you're right. It's the it's really the internal assessment where that conflict played out because, by and large, the external assessments were exams at the end of the year, by which time it's too late for formative feedback to students anyway. Wow. I, I mean, you can have they did in fact, and I think still do get their exams back with, and they've been marked, but that's pretty thin in terms of formative feedback. Right. It could feed into the next year, but really, which student is going to read that? But the internal assessment, I think the hope was that, yes, they could use it as a, a formative learning tool so that students could be helped by, by the, the work that they'd done towards the assessment. And then you mentioned second chance assessment. So, you know, let's help them improve and then they could try it again. And why not again and again? So that was one of the issues that came up that we had to deal, deal with. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's, it's, a, it's the purpose that you're using the assessment for. As a formative thing, that's right. But then if you want yeah. to attach a grade to it and say you get credits towards your certificate, you get legitimate yeah. questions of fairness coming up. One kid gets five cracks at it and, and another doesn't. And to some extent, that was under the control of schools, how many, how many attempts they were allowed. Yeah. And, and so that leads to things like over-assessment, you know, because people and, and it turns all formative assessment into high stakes assessment so you get into all sorts of problems there because the students don't they see every assessment as a summative yes of course uh, <laughs> but 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 again it, it for me it, it is it is about the, the the parameters we put around that as policymakers so that you know what do we want what do we want out of this if if, for example, the argument is if a student takes three different goes to get to the, the standard, while another one doesn't, does it actually matter if, in the end, the students end up in the same place? Yes. So, I mean, does it matter? Well, uh, and well I, I think it matters to the extent that you need to make sure that not only are they able to display the knowledge or skill that the standard requires. But if you've got a mind to a more holistic view of their education, that they've learned it in a way that's going to support further learning. And this, this is one of the things that I, I, I get concerned about with especially internal assessment and NCEA, because all the incentives, it seems to me, for the, the students and the teachers to do what they need to do to get the credits. And having got the credits, okay, now we've done that and we can move on. But has the, my question is, has the material been learned to a deep enough extent that it will still be there to support the next learning or even next week? Yeah, I, I take your point. And, and to me, that, that, that goes to 
the, 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 frame, the frame you put around this assessment. If you put a frame around the assessment, this is for ranking purposes and credentialing, and, and it's a competitive process. It's quite different to framing it as this is part of the learning because it, I mean, you, I could imagine a situation where, you know, a student getting there for the first time may actually not be as capable as a student who takes three goes. You could put up the argument that the student has got has developed a better understanding. So, in a sense, what I'm saying is, we got into trouble with that because people said it's not fair. Yes. It's not fair. So why is it not fair? Well, it's not fair because we're using it to rank people or, to, or, or as a credential exercise. We're not using it to say, well, actually, student A and student B uh, have done their learning and they've got there. And, and, and so because if, if that's all we did and we moved on, it wouldn't be an issue. I, I, I think you're right. So it is, we come back to this, perhaps asking too much of one assessment to try to do both jobs. And I, I've been thinking about a way to resolve this problem. And tell me what you think about this. And it, it, it takes into account a couple of other difficulties as well, I think, with internal assessment, which is that during some parts of the year, across all their subjects, a student could be submitting an internal assessment just about every week or every couple of weeks. And so their mind is constantly on this accumulation of credits and they're counting yeah. the credits. And it's it's pretty well known that some students at least will get to a, a, a certain number of credits that they think they need and then they'll say, well, now I've done enough and may mm. not concentrate on the remainder of the assessments for the year. And we also have this with teachers to an extent, they're constantly watching the credits and they're making strategic decisions about which standards they're going to assess based on what they think students will be able to get the credits for. But those decisions are not necessarily the same. You wouldn't necessarily reach the same conclusion if you were asking what do they really need to further their learning. They may be to some extent separate questions. So yeah. I have a couple of ideas for resolving this. Oh, and the other one is actually the inconsistency in the way in which in internal assessment is marked. And, and of course, we have this moderation system, but it only happens after the fact, and it doesn't modify the grades when the moderators think that the teacher didn't get it quite right. And we have seen over the last 10 years a massive increase in the proportion of internally assessed grades at excellence, to the extent that in some standards, it's the most common grade. And so we have this grade inflation going on as well. And, yeah. and so what, one of the things that I've been thinking about is rather than teachers issuing the grades, the teachers run the assessments as they do now and use the, the, them purely for formative purposes, that they're not asked to assign a grade at all. And instead, at the end of the year, the school submits the internal assessments to NZQA to be marked in just the same way as the externals. And it seems to me that if we did that, there would be a few potential benefits. First of all, there's a decoupling of that formative and summative part of the of the work that the internal assessment's being asked to do because the teachers are now free to use it formatively without having to worry about assigning grades. We'd have more consistency in the marking because it's being done 
more like the way the exams are marked, where you have a smallish panel who can communicate tightly and they're, they're pretty experienced. And, and also then students would no longer be counting credits during the year and having their mind on accumulation of credits, which I think tends to promote superficial learning and instead could just be concentrating more on the learning itself and then the credits come at the end. What, what, what do you think about that, those ideas? I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. I, 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 I think the, the, the well, let, let me put it this way. I, I think, you know, the, the, the idea that external assessment is better than internal, I mean, I know you're not saying that, but the, the argument is that external assessment is better than internal assessment. Certainly, it's, it, you know, it, it, it will be more consistent but 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 I I do wonder whether in an external assessment by way of exam, just just to be specific, has just as many problems as uh, I, just internal. To, assessment. I, I'm not arguing that the internal assessments ought to become exams. My my view is that the internal assessments would remain, you know, the, the kinds of tasks that are used during the year now. It's just that the yeah. credits wouldn't be awarded during the year because, yeah. because I I. I believe that the award of credits is d distracting for students and teachers from from the learning and teaching. Okay, so I mean, I think that the idea of the internal assessments being marked centrally has big issues, because it, what it will do is, if that if that if one of the things you're suggesting is that the internal assessment be be centralized and marked centralized, then I think that's going to that's going to feed back, that's going to drive the nature of the internal assessments and to a point where we will lose some of the benefits of internal assessment. Are you talking about the ability to have local collection approaches? Of evidence, yeah, collection of evidence, the, the nature of the assessment, a practical assessment, you know, watching students do, a, do an experiment. There's a whole pile of internal stuff, which actually I think if you translate into the work environment or any other environment, that's what people do. You know, they're, they're assessed on what they do. So I, I, I'm not convinced that centralising internal assessment is even necessary if we can provide teachers with support, good exemplars, and most importantly, I think, take away the pressure that we put on teachers. You know, I was a school principal, you know, and one of the things that I got pressured to do was to make sure that the NCA pass rates were going to be okay for the ERO or the, the league tables. So, you know, we end up pressuring teachers to do this stuff and teachers end up having to do it because that's what they have to do. But I'm just trying to imagine a situation where, for example, you know, we do one formal assessment for school leavers. Instead of three levels of NCEA. Instead of three levels of NCEA. Yes. And, and that might involve a degree of external assessment, you know, common tasks. They, that, that, they may be around literacy and numeracy and other competencies. And they, 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 there could be a big chunk of internal assessment. But, but imagine if we, if we are let, if at level one and two, let's say, or level one, wherever, wherever you, you, you state it, you're you're telling teachers go do your stuff you know teach teach the curriculum 
And that's another thing we want to talk about, I'm sure, that yes. the curriculum should be driving this. Teach the curriculum, select the standards that you need to teach the curriculum, report on that, make sure you've got good systems and moderation processes, which could be checked externally to make sure that, you know, the teachers have got the right end of the stick. But, and, and you know, do the credits, but, but you take the pressure off the schools and the students to perform, certainly at level one and two, and you might get a, di a whole different way of looking at assessment, which I think would be really beneficial. And and you could still have something, you know, for public consumption, where, where as a school leaver, you leave with something which has consistency and validity. But we don't we 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 don't seem to want to think about those sorts of solutions. We're, yes, I, we, I mean, I, I certainly would be very much open to the idea that we have a a leaving certificate instead of three levels. I think we're, we may not be the only country in the world, but we're certainly one of the only countries, at least in the developed world, that has three full years of, of formal credentialed assessment at the end yes. of school. It seems overkill. I, I would agree about that. But I, I yes. do want to just probe a little bit more this this question of, of internal assessment, because it doesn't seem yes. to me that... The idea of NZQA doing the marking at the end of the year need homogenise the assessment process itself. What I have in mind is that if there's a, a standard, then the school, or on behalf of the, the students, su submit the evidence that the student has met those sta that standard, and it could come in, in different forms. So to that extent, it doesn't look the same as an exam situation where everybody does the same precisely the same assessment at precisely the same time. It's actually more flexible than that. You could have different approaches to how that evidence was collected in schools. And it's the job of the marking panel to maintain the standard in whatever form that evidence comes. So it doesn't seem to me necessarily the case that you would have the problem that, that you worry about there. My question really would be, what are we trying, I mean, what are we trying to achieve by doing that? I, well, what, I mean, I what think... I'd be trying to achieve is a separation between the formative and summative parts of what we're asking internal assessment to do so that teachers, as a result, would be more able to use it formatively because they themselves don't have to worry about what the grade is or how many times the student's allowed to try to do this because all that's going to happen is that they're going to submit the evidence, which, you know, they have a professional responsibility to make sure is authentic, that they haven't done it for the student or given over much help with the final product. You see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, but I mean, I'm just trying to imagine yeah, an internal assessment which is based on a full day of a science experiment. So yeah. how, how do we... How do we how would that work in terms of a centralised approach? Well, there would be a report, presumably, that the student would produce based on that day's work. And yeah. that might take the form of a, a, a simple, typical science report where they, they explain a bit of the background and then the methods they used. And they've got a data presentation and a little discussion of, the, of that. And, and that gets submitted as a, as a record of the evidence that they've performed that task and, yeah. and, and yeah. understood certain things to a, a criterion. Yeah, so 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 you effectively it's the process that that we're checking that, that yes. see, I suppose what yeah I suppose what I mean it it might be 
fine. I mean, I I worry that the the formative the formative you know if if a student does a piece of work and the and the student and the teacher then the teacher gives that student feedback, but not the grade. That's that's a bit that's difficult, isn't it? I, 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 because you know once the teacher give gives feedback around oh you could have done this better or you could have done that better then it's it's a pretty narrow step from there to say well it's not achieved or achieved or a merit or excellence uh, what, I'm, what, I'm, what i'm saying is sorry to interrupt but mm, no. my question really is why is that necessary if if we were prepared to say to provide our teachers with the support that they need to do the exemplification and to take that pressure off in terms of the 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 ranking the credentialing bit then then we we take away all that stuff and we say to we say to our schools and our teachers here's the curriculum select the standards mark the standards address the, we'll have a system of moderation that sits on top of that but we're prepared to accept that as your professional your professional judgment around where that student is at because you're making a professional judgment you're not making a a, a political a, a political judgment based on rankings and league tables we've taken that away so the, our teachers have that capacity to do that i i i think they do on a on a local level i, I think the data have told us that at least over time there there isn't much consistency that that when that system is left to roll for a few years, you do see these these big increases, especially at the high grade end. And I'd argue that's because the incentives in place all push in that direction. Everybody wants to see higher grades. The teachers do, the students do, the parents do, and the NZQA does. Well, that's my question. You know, why do people? Why why are teachers driven to that grade inflation? And my argument is that they are driven to that because of pressures that are put onto them by the institutions and the principals and the structures. I certainly think those those structures don't help. They may, but it may be more personal than that. They they just like to see their students do well, and so and so every line call they they will call in favour of the student, and perhaps in the individual case that's a good thing. But I, I think over time that ends up moving the line. So, I mean, that's interesting. It, it comes down to the professionalism of teachers and principals and maybe the institutions that, that, uh, that monitor schools. Because, I mean, one, I think one way, I'm just speculating here, one way of, of addressing the possible grade inflation and the teachers losing their, losing their professional judgment and sort of allowing things to, to, to escalate it is some form of moderation. Now, it doesn't have to be, you know, the site we, we introduced, which was, I think we'd all agree, overkill to begin with. The, the, mass, are, the mass of 10% of all work. Yeah, really, yeah. yeah. And remember, those of you who maybe aren't, are listening and watching who, who don't remember, but the internal assessment at that time had no credibility and we made the decision that we would go big and moderate 10% of work to get the credibility back. And then we reduced the percentage because we felt that was enough. We could Very expensive, say, wasn't it? Very expensive. What I'm saying is 
can we can we deliver to schools a mechanism whereby a principal in a school is told, look, you, you, your grades are creeping up. What's going on here? Do you need to check your professional judgments? And 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 you know, make sure your teachers understand the exemplars that are available for you to make. So th those sorts of trusted conversations between schools and a and a an organisation that's you know an era or whatever it is, saying this is what it's looking like and you need to do something about it. Mm. That's if we treat our teachers as professionals, and we take the pressures away from them. That's one way we could monitor that. The other way I think we could monitor it is do exactly what you've been doing, which is to actually look at the numbers. I remember when you and I at NZQA, we looked at the numbers school by school. Yes. And we identified outliers and say, look, that doesn't look right. So that all of those sorts of things I think are possible to maintain the sort of standards without, without I mean, without sort of, Contracting it out to centralised agencies to do do the do the stuff. That, that, I mean, why not? And and it for me, it I I think the value in term assessment or school based assessment is huge, and it would be a pity to 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 take away the flexibilities that that provides. Yeah, that's. I mean, I I agree with that, and and I don't want to labour the point too much, and I do want to move on to other things. But yeah, yeah. again, I I think the real value in internal assessment is formative, mm. and actually, I think we could unburden it to be more formative by separating the the summative component, yeah. but. But, but I, I, let's let's move on to the, to the question of curriculum because that obviously interfaces tightly with assessment because assessment is supposed to assess the curriculum. Yeah. And you know one one of the things that I th I think you just said and make sure I've got this right is and if so I'd I'd agree with it at least in principle that really we should have a curriculum which determines for teachers what to teach. And yeah. That when it came to NCEA, they would see the standards as a kind of sampling of that curriculum, whereby yeah. they were assessing selected parts of it. So mm -hmm. rather than, I think, a situation which is a bit pervasive at the moment, where the, the teachers will treat each standard as if it was a, a curriculum unit and then assess it in isolation, and this results in another quite well-publicised issue with NCEA, which is... What I think Cedric Hall called the fragmentation problem, yeah, the, the yeah. fact that instead of a, a unified curriculum, we've got a set of disunified standards that get treated like curriculum units, and to some extent, I, I am concerned that the, that's an inevitable result of cutting up the assessment the way we have into these these smaller chunks. But I think also it's it's not helped by the rather thin nature of the New Zealand curriculum it really doesn't have a lot in it if you look at the the page for and it, it will be literally a, a page or a couple of columns on a page for year 13 history or something like that actually we've got the New Zealand history's curriculum now which is much much thicker but 
And so that was a bad, yeah. a bad example. But any other <laughs> subject, you're going to find a few bullet points on what is expected at year 13. Do you think that a richer curriculum might help that problem? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's really interesting. And I don't, I, honestly, Mike, I don't know. I'm, I'm in two minds, three minds about this. I think the, you, you know, the, 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 the problem with, I mean, you'll probably cover this later, but I'll, I'll mention it. The problem with curriculum and, and, and NCA is that it, it, it's sat in two different organisations and, and, and ministers and, and people like that have insisted on, on reviewing the curriculum separately from the NCA. And in, and so, and in reverse order, right? They, they always order. Do, do the assessment first and then the curriculum. Just beyond, and they keep doing it. I mean, I, it's like Groundhog Day that you know. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Minister Tinetti has said, "Oh, we've got it under control now." But how could they possibly do that again? Mm-hmm. It is beyond belief. Anyway, so put that to one side. I, I see. Here's my argument, uh, and and you'll shoot me down. I think, but I'm going to put it in. I had a look at the the 2007 curriculum a couple of days ago. And I looked at the social studies one, which yes. is actually three bullet points or something. Mm-hmm. It is, there's nothing there. And then I looked at the, actually I looked at the maths one and the science one, and I thought actually there was a fair bit there uh, in terms of what we expect our students to do at the various levels. Were you talking about the, in particular, the primary level or the secondary level or both? Or? I'm talking, I looked at level six maths, for example. Right, so that would be... Sort of 14, 15 year olds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got, you know, algebra, number, measurement. It's got, it, and, and it's got, it, maybe it needs expanding. But what I'm trying to say is one of the problems we have is that 2007 curriculum was of variable quality in terms of what was expected, what was written down in terms of the achievement objectives. So that's the first point. But the, I think the, the, the second point is, you, you, you're absolutely right. I think that if we want the standards to be based on the curriculum, then the curriculum needs to, to help the standard writers. And the problem is, unless you have the same people doing the work, you will know exactly what I'm saying. The curriculum writers will write something, which, and the standard writers will say, well, we can't assess that. Yes. And you get, and 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 so you get this this fight between the curriculum writers who say, "Oh, this is what the curriculum," and the standard writers who have got this requirement for qualifications, for ranking, for dis, you know all of that sort of stuff, and the two have not been married together properly, and and that to me is fundamental. That if we're doing a curriculum, the assessment of that curriculum should be developed as you go. Right. So, and I don't, so you, you, you might even pre- produce the two in tandem. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, uh, and perhaps here's a radical suggestion that the curriculum writers and the standard writers could be the same people. Could be the same people. They, they damn, damn right. And maybe they could work in the same organisation. Yeah, absolutely agree. And because with this constantly, I mean, I understand my, my, my conversations with people that I've talked to, is that the NZQA and the ministry are, are already in a fight about the, the, the standard writing. 
because well, we, we we saw the most recent iteration of that fight over the the recent trials of the new literacy and numeracy standards for NCEA, which came out with frankly appalling results. I would argue results that ought not to have come as a surprise, given what we've seen out of the national monitoring study at years four and eight. Pretty much the same figures that we saw about a third of the kids getting the writing standard, just over half the numeracy standard and about two-thirds the reading standard. That was for the NCEA trial. You yeah. see yeah. about the same proportions meeting curriculum expectations at year eight in the national monitoring. So why it came as a surprise to the ministry was a surprise to me. But having said that, they seem to try to explain it away in all sorts of ways and, and told NZQA they'd made the exam too hard and there were all these things that they were trying to use as a, a way out. And NZQA, to their credit, pushed back. There were, there were some emails released under the Inf Official Information Act and I thought NZQA held the line pretty well. But... It, it is a, a, an example of this kind of fight that they have all the time. Yeah. And I suppose the question I have is, where is the long-term data about what the standard should be? So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I actually don't know where and who decides what the standard for level one literacy should be. Well, the the answer to that is that it is nominally benchmarked against, I think, OECD standards for yeah. what for, for, for some kind of estimate of what is required to be functional in society. So it's not a university standard or anything like that. It's more, can you read a newspaper? Can you do your accounts for your household? Things like that. Yeah. So, so it, it's, it's not linked to a particular curriculum. It's a whole lot no. of... That's right. There's a whole lot of competencies, really, around. So I suppose the, the, the question I have around around the literacy, numeracy, stand, two, two comments I would make is, one is, to, to what extent are we over-egging literacy and numeracy requirements? That, that, that although there are students who are not reaching whatever the standard is, is the answer to rewrite literacy, numeracy standards or whatever it is we're doing or have a test, or is it to address the issues that these students have are having problems with? What I'm trying to say is that we, we are changing the entire system mm. because a group of students, and we generally know who they are, are failing to achieve it. Well, so, is it? I mean, should should we be addressing that issue? Uh, I, I think we, we absolutely should. I mean, I think what, really what these results are telling us, and what the national monitoring results have been telling us for some time, is that the way in which these, and I would say, they're key skills for yeah. for life, and also for accessing educational opportunity to be able to read and write in particular, and and numeracy too, if you want to do anything remotely in the in the science area or the the finance area yeah. or anything like that they're very essential the way we've yeah. been teaching them at primary school hasn't been working and that that view is accordant with scientific evidence on how human beings learn these skills and so i do think that one positive out of it has been at, at last I, I would 
say, kicking and screaming, the ministry is being dragged towards effective methods of teaching these skills at primary school that they've studiously ignored for more than right. two decades. Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. And the question I have is, you know, the the the, the public perception certainly is that the government is fixing the literacy and numeracy problem by uh, by establishing new literacy and numeracy standards for 15-year-olds. And that, that's crazy stuff. I, I don't think that's the purpose of the NCA standards. It seems to me that's a credential. So that's, that's so that a young person can say to a potential employer, here is evidence that I can read and write at a basic adult level. Hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't agree that that is a mechanism to fix the earlier problems. It, I think it has been a wake-up call about those earlier problems. Surely, but, yeah, so, sorry, keep going, yeah. Well, I mean, and having had that wake-up call, that that behooves the ministry and and I would say teacher education in particular as well, how teachers are trained to teach literacy and numeracy in the primary schools really needs a radical rethink. And yeah. and that's where that's that's the message I take from that at, at any rate. No, 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 I agree with you. I suppose all I'm saying is that establishing these literacy and numeracy standards at level level one is just a you know potential recipe to to create a whole lot of failure for students who have been through a, a not a very nice, not a very supportive system in terms yeah. of developing literacy and numeracy. And they'll be penalised. It. So I, I still. I, I agree I, with that. I, I don't think there's any way, and I don't think it's even a political possibility, to to make it a co-requisite for NCEA while we have this appalling level of failure. I, I just I just don't think that's a goer. We I I would support keeping the the standards, but having them as a standalone thing, because absolutely it, agree. With yeah. Yeah. They should be standalone. Can I, Michael? Just I'll just tell you the story about. I think you probably know it, but one of the things those literacy and numeracy standards. The current way of doing it was when I was deputy chief executive at NZQA. We that that's when it started. So I, I the ministry and our and, and NZQA bear responsibility, and and the the previous literacy and numeracy standards were appallingly low mm. uh, this is prior to the current system where you can get them by achieving a number of standards or selected standards and and i remember distinctly when when i was appointed we went we looked at those literacy and numeracy standards and we realized that they were awful and they needed to be improved and so we came up with the idea that if you could select originally it was a very limited number of standards in english and social science in the case of literacy which could be accommodated or changed or altered so that students were required to, in order to get those standards, they had to demonstrate literacy. So you were going to introduce some criteria for the actual literacy yeah. component of the standard? The standard. So if there was a social study standard which existed, which involved writing or reading, then it, it, it could have been, it, there could have been some work done for that standard to say, well, you wouldn't have been able to achieve that standard unless you had appropriate literacy skills. And that could have been externally assessed. It's no big deal. So what we thought was 
you know, you, 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 you get some of those in English, social studies, maybe geography, so that a range of standards are identified which are literacy rich, which may be externally assessed, which you have to do. And the same with maths, we could do the same thing. And we, the original idea was that there will be a very small number of limited standards. So that some standards, if you like, to become literate, to get your literacy requirement would be compulsory. Yeah. So that was the original idea. And what happened was, that the, and I'm gonna blame the ministry, what happened was it ended up in the ministry and instead of a small group of standards we were told we can't write rewrite the standards so we'll just pick a and then and then they end up with hundreds of standards more than 700 for literacy and well over 100 for numeracy i mean madness it's just absolute madness. and so the point i'm trying to make is if we implement policies properly if we had done that properly and you could multiply that many times i suspect we wouldn't necessarily be in a situation where we're having to create another. You know, I noticed one of the transitionary requirements now, I don't know what they are, but until the new literacy and numeracy standards up and running, there is a transition, two-year transition, where they can select some standards. And I suspect that that's what we, <laughs> we sort of what we originally were talking about. A, a smaller set of standards. But, yeah. but yeah. I'd argue yeah. you're still going to have the problem that unless those standards have explicit criteria for the level of reading or the level of writing or numeracy that's that's required, you will still have the, the issue that it really doesn't credential those things at all. And, you know, I, you may be aware, Bailey, I, I did a study about 10 years ago with a couple of others commissioned by the TEC because they were interested okay. in, in the level of literacy and numeracy of people going into non-university tertiary education and not only did we find that there we did independent tests of literacy and numeracy and we we used the TEC's literacy tool for that and numeracy tool and we found that there not only was their level of literacy and numeracy poor on average it was also uncorrelated with whether or not they had the NCEA requirement in other words those mm. literacy and numeracy requirements for NCEA really was not, we're not sensitive at all to how literate or numerate somebody no. was. So I think yeah. in the end, you can't get out of directly assessing those skills if what you want is a measure of those skills. Yeah, I, maybe maybe you're right. I, I suppose I, I, I the, the main problem for me, given where we are at, is that that it should not, literacy and numeracy standards should not be a barrier to achieving NCA. Well, that, and actually, you know, I, I just think that's that's crazy stuff. Well, and I think we, I do think we overrate the literacy and numeracy. I think that there are, there, there are ways that, that students are literate and numerate, which that they could easily get NCA without, without those high level literacy and numeracy skills. And there's nothing wrong with that. I would argue they're not high level. What the standard is is pretty basic, and and I think I mean I'm just going to I think numeracy is more debatable because yeah. well, I, I'd say people do need to be able to deal with their personal finances, for example. But let's set that aside and just talk about reading and writing. I think yeah. reading, I mean, we do a massive disservice to young people, especially those from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds who may not have the the cultural capital at home to help them with their literacy. 
when we don't use the most effective methods we could, and then they get into high school when they find that they can't access the broader curriculum because they can't read the material. Totally agree. Yeah. And, and, and writing, I think, you know, people might say, well, we could use voice to text and things like that. And, and perhaps that's true. But, I, you know, in the end, I think that writing as a technology, because that's what it is, it's an invented thing. It's not like oral language, which is built into us biologically. It's like being able to outsource our brains to an extent. We're, we're able to write down our thoughts and organise them and reorganise them. And the skill of being able to do that is a massive boost to our ability to think because it gives us, it expands our brains beyond the capacity of our heads, as it were. No, look, I, I do agree. Yeah, I do agree. So we probably should wrap up because we're, we're, yeah. coming, we're coming up to nearly an hour here, which I knew we would. I knew we would, Bali. And, and I've got to say, one of the things that I've always valued about discussions with you is that we can disagree in good faith and and oh, yes. you know, I know that we've we've affected one another's thinking over the years, and and I just really appreciate that. And I think it's a good lesson for polarized times to to, to hear a conversation where people can disagree and and yeah. and think about the <laughs> the conversation yeah, rather than get angry about it. Yeah. So we we totally agree. We we got to stop thinking binary. We we got to yeah. We got to work work the solutions. Yeah. Well, so well, it's good to talk. Thank you so much, Bali, for coming on the New Zealand Initiative podcast.